بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته اللهم انفعنا بما علمتنا وعلمنا ما ينفعنا وارزقنا علما تنفعنا به آمين رب العالمين الحمد لله ثم الحمد لله we thank and we praise Allah عز وجل as we uh, taught uh, lesson number two tonight on the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the book Al-Lu'l-Ul Maknoon as we said and as we explained last week in our introduction um, so last week we ended off we started off speaking about the importance of seerah and what some of the scholars have stated about the importance of studying seerah right and about going through the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and benefiting from his life as a father as a, as a youngster as a leader, as an imam, as a da'i, someone that's involved in da'wah, and in all aspects of life. And we spoke about the great merits that the seerah has, and the distinguishing advantages, the distinguished advance, uh, advantages that the seerah of Rasulullah has. And we touched on a few points. For example, it's the most authentic seerah that we know of. And... It's the most detailed seerah compared to the, the seerahs of all the other anbiya and sahaba and so forth. And we said it is a seerah of a human being so that we can benefit from him, from him and his lifestyle and as a role model. And we mentioned for example that the seerah covers every aspect of life. So as we said from a youngster growing up up until an old man. A father figure, a family figure, a neighbor, a leader, a community person, a companion, a friend, and so forth, a husband. All of these aspects of life, the seerah covers and we benefit from it. Right? And those are some of the points that we mentioned last week. We ended off speaking about the state of the, the Arabs in Jahiliya. So what is Jahiliya? Jahiliya translates to the, the period of ignorance. So this was before the coming of the messenger. This is the, the people that he was sent to. They were in a state of jahal. They were in a state of complete ignorance. And we spoke about this. We mentioned, for example, what did they, what did they do? They used to bury their children alive. Most specifically, their daughters, sometimes even sons, put out of fear of poverty. Right? The daughters they treated as, as a burden. As a, a humiliation. What else did they do? They used to do tawaf naked. We mentioned this. We mentioned riba. We mentioned gambling. We mentioned zina. And so forth. Right? And we, we explained the, 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 the type of people they were. They were rough. They were tough. They were wild. They were... Warmongrels. Warmongrels, yes. They used to, to go to war for fun. For amusement, we explained. Right? So this was the type of people... And the time and the era uh, that the Prophet eventually was sent to, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This was the, the way of the Arabs during those days. So the question is, why was he sent to those people? Why was he sent to the Jazeera to the Arab? The Arabian Peninsula, why was he sent there? Right? Um, and the Sheikh, he explains and he says, this was from the Hikmah of Allah Azza wa Jalla. Everything that happens... He's out of the hikmah and the perfect wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says that this son 
had to be raised in a time where the darkness had to be extinguished and driven out. This is how he sent the Prophet as a son, bringing out, taking away the darkness. And he sent him to fulfill this mission and to bring nur to the entire world and guidance. From the, the, the Arabian Peninsula, where they were in complete darkness and ignorance, and they were the most in need of this nur that he brought and this guidance that he brought. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he chose them for certain reasons. That this da'wah will start in this place and it will spread to every part of this world. One of the reasons, so the Shaykh, he mentions a number of reasons. The first reason is that those Arabs were actually upon fitrah. In many ways they were upon, upon fitrah. We should know this word by now. What does fitrah mean? Fitrah is the, your natural inclination, the way you were created. And they were also people who were strong-willed. They were people who were strong-willed. If they were people who understood the haqq, they would fight for the haqq. They would stand by the haqq. If this haqq was made clear to them and batil was, was lifted from the eyes, that lid, that cover over the eyes was lifted from them, they would love it extremely and they would embrace it. And in fact, they would die for it. They would give their lives for it. This was the type of people they were. You understand? And a clear evidence with this is found in the hadith where Suhail ibn Amr, Suhail, the son of Amr radiallahu anhu, this happened in the treaty of Hudaybiyah. And of course, the details of these things will come up, inshallah. But what happened was, is they decided there's going to be a a truce, right? They came and they had a deal, a pact, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And in this treaty, for example, the Prophet ﷺ, he said, okay, let's start by writing Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And they said, we don't know what that means, ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. He said, just say Bismillah in the name of Allah. So the Prophet said, okay, let's start with Bismillah. That's how they started the, the treaty when they wrote it down. And then in there he said, هذا ما قضى عليه محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. In this thing that was to be written, this is what was concluded upon by Muhammad, the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم. So Suhail was there and he said, والله by Allah, had we known or had we believed that you are Rasulullah, then we would not have thrown you out of Mecca, nor would we have fought with you. Nor would we have fought with you. What's he saying? That if we knew, if we truly believed this, that you are the messenger of Allah, then we don't need to fought you. We will never kill you. We never. We, we don't need for anything. You understand? As if to say, if we truly believed you, we would have been with you 100%. Because this is how they actually were. This is how these Arabs were during those days. So this is what Suhail said initially. Suhail eventually became Muslim later on. He became a Muslim later on. So this is what he said as a, as a non-Muslim. Saying to the messenger, to say, uh, what? If we really acknowledged you, believed you to be the messenger, we'd have never expelled you, nor would we have gone to war with you. Nothing. We would be with you 
when he eventually accepted Islam, he was known as one of the best of Muslims. This is the same person, Sahabi, who eventually became a Sahabi, Suhail. Um, known for his salah, his sadaqah, his fasting, and a man who used to cry continuously when listening to the Quran. And he would say, for example, I have not left any position that I was with with the Mushrikeen, except that I've taken the same position with the Muslims. And I did not give any nafaqa, any basically charity with the Mushrikeen, except I gave the same now that I'm with the Muslims. Understand what he's saying? Whatever he used to do when he was a non-Muslim, he accepted Islam, Allah has forgiven him, right? But for them, he says, whatever I used to do back then, I make sure I do it now with the Muslims. If I benefited them in any way, the non-Muslims, I'm going to benefit the Muslims the same. If I used to spend on them, I'm going to spend on the Muslims the same. As if to outdo whatever I did before. Yet, that's besides the fact that, that they were already forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was Suhail. But this proves, this shows us the way that these people were. You understand? They were, if, that, if they were just guided, then they were with you 100%. Secondly, the second point the Sheikh makes is that their, their hearts in many ways were still pure. In many ways were still, we explained that there were a lot of issues. They were in <coughs> a lot of misguidance and so forth. But in certain ways that were still pure. How so? If you compare them to the Romans and the Persians and the Indians, Back then, those people were already strong in a certain belief system. They were already following, you know, a certain philosophy. And they already had their ways about them. You understand? Whereas these companions, well, not the companions, but these Arabs, should we say, they were not like this. They were more upon absolute ignorance. So they were into gambling, they were zina, you picture these people uncultured, you know, drinking, sleeping, uh, immoralities going on, gambling their money away. Then it was complete, you know, like people were just lost, just going with the flow. You understand? Then they're fighting, then they're not stopped. You picture a drunkard, you know, a drunk person is like this. They just go with the wind, follow their emotions, follow their desires, and that's it. No control, no honor. This is how they were. But they did not have a, a belief system, for example. They were not staunch on a certain aqidah, for example, like some of the other people were. So, to guide them is perhaps easier. You understand that ignorance just has to be removed. And you come with guidance, and they are ready to accept. Whereas the others were set in their ways. They had certain you know, structures in place that it was different to the way the Arabs were. So for the Arabs to accept the message was actually easier than for those who were set in their, their belief systems and so forth. And this is basically what the Sheikh is saying as point number two. Okay, point number three he says is that the type of people there were once again, they were people who were extremely um, straightforward, they were frank, they were matter of fact type of people, practical and very keen, very serious. They were not people of deception, fool themselves and fool others, and deceive themselves and deceive others. That's not how they were. 
they would accustom themselves at times to upright speech, to determine, you know, determination and so forth. This is how they were. And this again is proven in many hadith. For example, when the Aus and the Khazraj, Aus and the Khazraj, which, which, which were two tribes, when they gathered in Aqaba to take bay'ah, to pledge their allegiance to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, um, they decided they're going to give this pledge. And one of them said, Ya Rasulullah, what are we going to get if we fulfill this pledge? What is there for us? This is just before the pledge is given. So why are we giving this pledge? We're giving this pledge for so forth, this reason. What are we going to get? The Prophet said, you get al-Jannah. You will get paradise. So what did they say? Give your hand. So the Prophet gave his hand and they all took the pledge. That's how it was. No beating around the bush. Straight to the point. That's it. That's what we do. It. Serious. And what did they do? Did they live by this pledge? They lived by this pledge. They, they gave this allegiance to the Prophet and they were truthful to it. You understand? Serious people. To the point, if this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. This is how they were. You understand? There was no deception. This is different to the Munafiqeen. They were straight people. These characteristics makes it easy to give da'wah. It makes them more susceptible to accepting the da'wah. Whereas people who are deceptive, people who lie, people who will cheat you, people who will, you know, hypocritical, the da'wah won't be accepted easily by them. So because of these characteristics, the da'wah, you know, is easily accepted by such people. In another hadith, Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, radiallahu anhu, he said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, on behalf of the Ansar, speaking on behalf of the Ansar on the day of Badr, in the battle of Badr, he said, فَوَالَّذِي بَعَثَكَ بِالْحَقِّ He swore, and he said, by the one who sent you with the truth, meaning by Allah, if you were to, to cross the ocean with us, and if you ask us to come with you and to cross the ocean, and that ocean starts to shake you and to throw you around, we will throw, be thrown around with you. That's what we will do with you. And no person will, will stay behind. No person will be, will be left behind. And this is how the Sahaba were. This is how these Arabs were. This was the nature. That if we're with you, we're with you 100%. Whatever difficulty you're going to go through, we're going to go through it with you. Whatever turmoil comes, we're with you. No person stays behind. No, none of us are going to um, move away and so forth. So they fulfilled this, this pledge and this, this promise and they were with the Prophet the whole way. Again, this is the, the point here is, this is the type of people they were. They stood by the word, they were not deceptive, they were serious, matter-of-fact type of people and this made it easy to give them da'wah and Allah knows best. <coughs> Another point the Sheikh makes is that the Arabs of the time were also people who were free from um, the sickness and the disease that others had in other cities, like that of luxury and extravagance. They were not people of luxury and extravagance. They were simple people. Right? They were simple people, and again, this makes it easier for them to accept the da'wah. A person who is all about luxury and extravagance and pomp, 
difficult to accept the da'wah, isn't it so? For them to accept the da'wah is extremely hard because they've got to give up a lot of, you know, their desires and so forth. These people were not like that. They were not like that. Okay, there were that, different issues as we spoke about. But for them to change that, once the, the hidayah came, it was easier for them to accept because they were still simple, straightforward, easy to approach people. Another example was they were known for their truthfulness, they were known for amana, people of responsibility, and they were also known for bravery. These were the traits of the Arabs. They were truthful, upright, people of responsibility, and brave, courageous. They were not munafiqeen. Um, responsible and brave. And again, these are all characteristics that, that is perfect food for da'wah. Perfect. Even today, you see people like this. You can meet amongst the kuffar, you meet people like this. Among the non-Muslims, you meet people like this. These are the type of people we should be even more encouraged to go to and to give in da'wah. Because they will make the best of Muslims. Just like they are good people in disbelief, imagine what they will do if they become Muslims. Imagine how they will be if they taste the sweetness of Islam. And this is exactly how it was for the Sahaba. So as much as those Arabs had the, the you know, the jahiliyyah was extreme. The jahiliyyah was extreme. They had a lot of good in them. In terms of character. In terms of the personalities and the etiquette and so forth. Once that is flipped and the, that hidayah comes and the aqidah of iman and so forth comes into their life, what happened? All those good traits becomes personified and it becomes um, multiplied and they become the best of people. They now get the best of both worlds. The, the, the pure aqidah and iman along with those, those brilliant qualities that they had. Right? The last point is, or the second last point that the Sheikh makes is, there were also people who were Bold and courageous, and they were warriors. They were people who were used to fighting. They were horsemen. And they were simple and not part of the, as we see, not people of the dunya. Yani they, didn't, they weren't after the luxuries of the world. And this is extremely important. Why? Because Islam needed people who were like this. Simple, not attached too much to the world, and also courageous and warriors. People who are prepared to fight. People who are prepared to stand by this deen. To stand by this deen and to protect this deen. So when the enemies come, you've got brave men who are ready. Who can take up arms, who can defend the ranks of the Muslims. If there's need to send out an army for jihad, you've got the best of men to send out an army for jihad. All of these characteristics again made them perfect. And in terms of accepting the deen, as we said, once there are those bad traits are gone, with all of these excellent traits that they had with their iman, they become the best of the best. So in many ways, we can see some wisdom in this. That Rasulullah was sent to this type of people. Yes, they were in complete chaos. But once he takes them out of that darkness, that, that, that jahiliyyah, that nur and ilm and hidayah comes to them, they become the best of people. Because the other traits that they had were perfect to accept Islam. It was perfect to take this message and to spread the message. And to defend the message. 
and so forth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Um, at the end of this chapter, the Sheikh mentions a hadith that is in Imam Ahmad's Musnad from Mikdad ibn Amr radiallahu anhu that he said, By Allah, Allah sent the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the most extreme of cases or situations. Referring to this era of, of Jahiliyyah, <coughs> of all the Anbiya, yani, compare any of the Anbiya what they were sent to, to what the Prophet ﷺ was sent to, his time was the, was the most extreme. These people were the most severe in the Jahiliyyah basically. But also in the, yani, in the Jahiliyyah. And then he came with the Furqan. What is the Furqan? Not really. Yes, the truth, but what else is the Furqan? The Furqan is the Quran. One of the names of the Quran is Al-Furqan, which means the criterion between right and wrong, between haq and batil. So this is one of the words, one of the names that the Quran has is Al-Furqan. So the Sahabi says he came with the Furqan to differentiate, to clarify what is haq and what is batil. And even to distinguish between father and son. This is what the Quran and what the Islam did. It split people up. Right? Not for a bad reason, but to bring haq and batil, to bring the truth. If you're on the side of the truth and you've got others on the side of batil, then they split. You understand? For the right reasons, for the right purpose. And he says at times you would see a man who was look at his son or his brother as a, as a disbeliever. This is what this is what happened. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up the locks on their hearts with Iman. And they knew that if they go astray, they would enter the fire. And the eyes were not calmed or cooled whilst he knew that his beloved was in the fire. So subhanAllah, this is what happened. He, he, basically the point here is that he's, he's making it very clear. That this was the worst of times. But the Prophet came with this Iman, with the Furqan, and it established Haq and Batil, such that the people could see. At times you would see your brother, or your father, or your son, and he's on the other side of disbelief. You understand? Um, and they used to recite, وَالَّذِينَ يَقُولُونَ رَبَّنَا هَبْلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَّاتِنَا قُرَّةَ أَعْيُنَ we, should, we all know this dua. That those who say and those who recite, Rabbana hablana, our Lord, bestow upon us from our spouses and our offspring, qurrata a'yun. Make them the, the coolness of our eyes. Make them the coolness of our eyes. The, this, the people used to recite this because they would look at the, their family members and they would not be the coolness of their eyes because they are on the side of Abati. And this teaches us a powerful lesson that the best way your child or your spouse or your family member can be the coolness of your eyes is when you see them upon haq. When you see them steadfast upon the deen. When you see them close to the Quran or establishing or memorizing the Quran or salah or you see, you know, that akhlaq. This is true coolness of the eyes. This is why the Sahaba in this instance used to recite this verse hoping that their family members would come over to the side of the haq to be the coolness of the eyes. 
Do you understand this? This this how this works? So the true coolness of the eyes is not looking at your child and mashallah how beautiful, or how pretty, or how cute, or how handsome. This is not real. There's no actual benefit in that. True coolness of the eyes is when you see the Quran and Sunnah upon them. And this is what we mean when we make this dua. One of the meanings of this dua is that this is what we want to see from them. That they, they are truly the coolness of our eyes. May Allah make us uh, make them like that to us. Amen. Tayyip, and that's part of the narration. We move on to the next chapter. Right, so we've spoken about reasons why he was sent to the, these Arabs. We gave him some of the reasons why and why they were easy, easily adaptable to this da'wah. Because of the condition that they were actually in, the type of people they were, and so forth. Tayyip, are there any questions on this chapter? Tayyip, the next chapter is مِنْ قَبْلِ مَوْلِدِهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ إِلَى مَوْلِدِهِ الشَّرِيفِ Right, basically we are going to speak about what happened from before his birth and up until his birth. From before the birth of the Prophet up until his birth. Under this chapter, the first heading is An Nasabud Nabawi Sharif. The honorable lineage of the Prophet. So as for his Nasab, the word Nasab means his lineage, his Nasab. Then he was the best of people upon this earth, upon this earth, <coughs> meaning completely. There was nobody that actually had a better lineage than him. His lineage had the, the highest level, the highest, highest level of, of, of honor. And even his enemies, they bore witness to this. They bear witness to this. So his enemy was, one of his enemies was Abu Sufyan. Right? Abu Sufyan, when he was sent to Hirqal, this <coughs> powerful Roman leader. And he said to Hirqal about the Prophet that the best of people is his people. And the best of tribes is his tribes. And the best of Community is his community. And when, when speaking to Hirqal about this man, he's trying to show Hirqal that in terms of status, he's actually from the best. He has the best status. His house, his, his, his forefathers, his tribe, his village, all of this, he's from the best of the best. So even his enemies, they were witness to this. And they acknowledged this. So his lineage is Muhammad. What does his name Muhammad mean? The name Muhammad, what does it literally mean? Muhammad means the praiseworthy or the praised one. Muhammad comes from the word Hamd, right? Which means praise. The one who's praised, the praised one. Right? And I mean, we know why he's the praised one. He's praised throughout the day. Throughout the night in this dunya, he's praised in the heavens and the earth by the malaika, and even Allah Azza wa Jalla has praised him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised him in the Quran. Allah praises him by this name in the Quran, but also by the name Ahmad, which means the most praised. Allah also praises him. Where? On the day of Qiyamah, Allah will praise him by giving him this honor of Shafa'ah. 
And then all people will praise him again. And also, the Maqam al-Mahmud, he will be given the honorable praised station. So many ways. Right? This is Muhammad. This is his name, which is a perfect name for him. Because he is truly the, the praised one. Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ibn Abdullah. The son of Abdullah. <coughs> his father, Abdullah. Now, when it comes to the lineage, we're going to mention a long list here. I would say we should at least memorize five to ten names. At least between five and ten names so that at least we know something of the lineage of the Prophet You understand? So we should know Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Ibn Abdul Muttalib. The son of Abdullah. The son of Abdul Muttalib. Ibn Hashim. He's the son of Hashim. No, what's Shaiba? What's Shaiba? What's Shaiba, we're going to get to Shaiba. Okay? Ibn Hashim. Ibn Abdi Manaf. Ibn Qusay. Ibn Kilab. Ibn Murrah. Ibn Ka'b. Ibn Lu'ay. Ibn Ghalib. Ibn Fihir. Ibn Malik. Ibn Nadr. Ibn Kinana. Ibn Khuzayma. Ibn Mudrika. Ibn Ilyas. Ibn Mudar. Ibn Nizar. Ibn Ma'di. Ibn Adnan. That is the lineage of the Prophet which is agreed upon. After this, there is some differences of opinion over who comes next. You understand? But this point here, up to Adnan, up to the name Adnan, there is no doubt in it. And no difference of opinion over it. This part of the lineage is what? Agreed upon with Tawatur. There is no doubt in it. You understand? I said we should remember what? At least five to ten names. Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. The son of Abdul Muttalib. The son of Hashim. The son of Abdi Manaf. That's five. That should be the least that we know. The least that we know. So I'm just going to give you ten at least that you can write this ten and memorize this ten down. That will be good. Or at least between five and ten. So we've got Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Abdul Muttalib ibn... Hashim ibn Abdi Manaf. Right? That's the five. So Ibn Qusay is number six. Ibn Qusay. Qaf Sadia. Qusay. Ibn Kilab. Ibn Murrah. Ibn Ka'b. And Ibn Lu'ay. <coughs> That's ten names. That's 10 names on the lineage of the Prophet. So we've got Abdi Manaf, which is number 5. Number 6 was Qusay, Ibn Kilab, Ibn Murrah, Ibn Ka'b, and Ibn Lu'ay. You write all 10 down? I would say it's a call shay. If you can memorize 10, that's good, inshallah. Good. Less than 5, not good. 5 is okay, acceptable. But Abu, what's it to say? Abu Mutalib. Abdul Mutalib, right? Hashim. Abdi Manaf. Qusay. Ibn Kilab. Ibn Murrah. Ibn Ka'ab. And Ibn Lu'ay. So obviously we know that Ibn means the son of, right? So Muhammad ibn, the son of Abdullah, Abdullah. 
ibni the son of Abdul Muttalib and so forth. Look, the name is Abdullah, but the context makes it Abdullah. The context, if you say Ibni, it's going to be Ibni Abdullah in terms of grammar. Okay? In terms of the Arabic grammar, if we're going to say Ibni, the next word is going to be Abdullah. It's not going to be Ibni Abdullah is wrong. But if you're saying English, the son of Abdullah, no problem, inshallah. Muttalib, yes. And then Ibn Hashim, Abdul Manaf, yes. Kusay, Qilad, Murra, Al-Qab. Not Al-Qab, Ibn Ka'b. Ibn Ka'b. It should be Ibn between each one, right? Ibn Ka'b, Ibn Lu'ay. That's nine. That's ten, including the Prophet's name. Oh, okay. Okay. So let's leave it at that. Try to memorize that, inshallah. طيب. The Sheikh then goes on and he says, again he goes back to the the root of the nasab of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and again he explains. He says that Allah subhanahu wa taala chose for the Prophet sallallahu, well he chose him from the best of all generations and the most pure of all the of all tribes. And from the best of wombs, from the best of people, and the best and the most honorable of people. Right? Then the Sheikh mentions a statement from Qadi Iyad, rahimahullah. And he says, as for the honorable lineage of the Prophet and his blessed city, then he says, these are things that actually don't require evidence. Nor does it require any clarity. Nor is it hidden from any. That he is from the elite of Bani Hashim. Bani Hashim was the tribe. Banu Hashim. He is from the elite of Bani Hashim. And from the elite of the Quraysh. And the most pure of all the Quraysh. In terms of his lineage. And the most blessed or honorable of all the Arabs. And as an individual from his father's side. He was the most honorable. And from his mother's side, from the people of Makkah, the most honorable. And from the blessed, most blessed of all lands of Makkah, salawatullahi wa sallamu This is from both sides, basically. The Sheikh is emphasizing that. He was from a noble um, lineage. From his father's side and from his, his mother's side. In fact, in a hadith in Bukhari, Sahih Bukhari, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, he said, I was sent from the best of all generations from the son of Adam. Take any generation. Until I was from those people that I came from. Basically emphasizing the fact that he came from the best of all generations. And the best of all people. The best of all lineages. And in that hadith of Abu Sufyan, we mentioned when he spoke to this Roman, Hirqal. Sufyan said, As if to say he is an extremely noble person. He's telling Hirqal, amongst us, he's a man of, of, of lineage. He's a man of status. He was one of the, the noble and the elite people um, from amongst the Arabs. 
In another hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said, "Inna Allah astafa kinanata min waladi Ismail." Allah chose Kinana, it's another tribe, from the children of Ismail, and then He chose the Quraysh from Kinana, and then He chose Quraysh from Bani Hashim, or from Quraysh He chose Bani Hashim, and He chose me from Bani Hashim. So what does this tell us? Kinana. The tribe came from who? The children of Ismail, the son of Ibrahim السلام, the, the prophet. And from Kina or from uh, Kinana came who? The tribe of the Quraysh. So the Quraysh is linked to the children of who? Ismail. And from the Quraysh came who comes who? Bani Hashim, the tribe of the Prophet. Bani Hashim, the tribe of the Prophet. And from Bani Hashim comes Rasulullah. Another hadith. Emphasizing and showing us this lineage that goes all the way up to who? The children of Ismail alayhi salam. Type in another hadith in the Musa of Ahmad and in the Tirmidhi and others. <coughs> the Prophet sallallahu was on the member and he said, I am Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, the son of Abdul Muttalib. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala indeed created the creation and he made me from the best of them and then he created them into two groups and he put me in the best of groups and then he created them into tribes and he put me into the the best of tribes then he created them into houses and he put me into the best of houses so i'm from the best of people in the best of homes this comes in the hadith again showing the status that he had in his community, amongst the Arabs, that he was from the elite of the Arabs, without a doubt. Okay? Just before Kinana, what's the tribe before Kinana again? Kinana, the children of Ismail. Yeah, no, that was the tribe Kinana, children of Ismail, right? Kinana came from the children of Ismail. Oh, okay. And from the children of Ismail came the Quraysh. Quraysh. And from the Quraysh came Bani Hashim, and the Prophet was from Bani Hashim. That's the, basically the, the lineage. Quraysh. In terms of generation, you could say, in terms of tribes and so forth. طيب. The next chapter the Sheikh says, the next heading is Taharatu Nasabin Nabi The purity of this lineage or the genealogy of the Prophet. So there's a narration from Ali bin Abi Talib عنه, that the Prophet said. خرجت من نكاح ولم أخرج من سفاح. That I came from نكاح and I did not come via سفاح. سفاح هي من زنا. Meaning he was a product of what? Of a marriage and not of زنا. Understand? من لدن آدم إلى أن ولدني أبي وأمي. This basically means from the time of Adam عليه السلام. The first Man, up until my parents, my father, my mother and my father. What does this tell us? And then he says, Lam yusibni min sifahi shay. Nothing from the zina or the immoralities of jahiliyyah has, has touched me. What does this narration tell us? That none of the traces of zina is part of his lineage. From the time of Adam, Right up until his parents gave birth to him, it's a pure lineage that did not contain 
Zina. Subhanallah. This is lineage is basically untouched. It's pure. From the immorality side of things, it's also pure. Uh, he then mentions a statement from Abu Shahba, rahimahullah ta'ala. And he says, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the best of people and the most honorable of people and with the best of knowledge or the best of lineage, sorry, and the most honorable of lineage. He says, none of his forefathers, he did not have any forefathers except that they were from the virtuous people, the people of status and wealth and honor and akhlaq. And none of his mothers were except that they were from the best of women in terms of their status and their position. So his forefathers and all of his mothers and his mother, grandmother and so forth were all women of virtue and status. His forefathers were all people of virtue and status. Right? This is part of this purity of his lineage. That they were not people of immorality. They were not those people in the streets who were walking naked and who were committing zina openly and so forth. And he basically says, um, all of this comes together. You know, in, in terms of the perfect personality of the Prophet this is all brought together. This all adds to this, to who he was as a person of status and a person of position. Right? As from the most pure of the Quraysh and the most pure and the most elite of the Adams, from the children of Ismail and Ibrahim Rasulullah The next chapter is the family of the Prophet With The next heading under this chapter is the family of the Prophet in terms of the lineage. So what we know about them is that they were the, the Hashimites, right? The Hashimiyyah from Banu Hashim. Hashimiyyah. This was the tribe. Okay. Where did this name come from? Where did the name Hashimiyyah come from? From a great grandfather. Right? From Abdul Muttalib's father who was Hashim. That's why they were known as the Hashimiyyah. The people of Hashim. Understand? So what do we know about Hashim? You know anything about Hashim? He was the son of who? Abdi Manaf. Right? He was the son of who? Abdi Manaf. What do we know about Hashim? What we know about Hashim is his name was Amr. His name was actually Amr. And he was the one that gave the pilgrims. Right? He was a man who again was known for his status and his virtue. And he was the one who used to, he was known for siqaya and rifada. Siqaya means to, to quench people's thirst. So what he used to do is, he was from the first of people. And this is what he was in charge of doing. He was the one who would gather water and take it to the, to the pilgrims in Mecca. To the Hujjaj. Right? And place it in various places. Around for the people of Hajj. Muzdarifa, Arafa, Mina and so forth. Right? So they would bring water and dates and so forth. And the, the Hujjaj would then 
have somebody to sustain themselves with. This was what Hashim would do. This was what Amr would do. Right? But where did Hashim come from if his name is Amr? Hashim is the one who Hashama Tharida Liqawmihi. It comes from the Arabic word Hashama. Hashama means basically to crush or to mix. Like to mix. What he would do is he would take the Tharid and he would mix basically some bread and some meat and they would make some type of, you know, some Tharid that they used to eat back then. The one who does this is called Hashama, meaning he's the one who does this, is Hashim. You understand? In Arabic, this is how they would do it. Hashama Tharid, he is Hashim. The one who does the action of Hashama in Arabic is Hashim. This is where this name came from. You understand? So he would do this for his people and for the people of Makkah and the Hujjaj. He would make food basically. Right? But Hashama means to, 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 you know, to use your hands and to mix things with your hands and to crush and to mix and so forth. This is Hashama. So this was why he got the name Hashim. He was also the first one to bring about the two uh, caravans, Rihlat al-Shita'i wa Saif. Rihlat al-Shita'i wa Saif. This is mentioned in the Quran even. He used to feed the Hujjaj before the day of Tarbiyah, which is the seventh and the, going into the eighth is the day of Tarbiyah. So before this, the eighth of Dhul Hijjah on Mina, in Mecca, in Arafah, Muzdalifah, all of this, he used to basically be the one in charge of feeding them. Was he a believer? Huh? Was he a believer? These people were upon fitrah. They were not Muslimin. Remember, this is not, the, the Prophet is not yet there. So they were upon a different religion. They were not upon Islam. But, but there was Hajj. There was Hajj. There was the rituals that have come through via from Ismail salam's time and so forth from the previous Ambiya's time. They were rituals, but these people were between religions, you can say. You understand? So they were not believers. They were not believers. Okay? And we're going <coughs> to speak about later on the religion of Abdul Muttalib or Abu Talib and his mother, Amina and Abdullah and so forth. Right? We'll speak about um, this issue. It should come up, inshallah. But he used to basically come with the tharib, which you mentioned is the mixture. He used to come with bread, with meat, with uh, tamar, dates and various things whatever they would have he would come and he would give out to the hujjaj and sustain the hujjaj and so forth another story from Hashim is that he went out to Sham to greater Syria as a tajir as a businessman when he came to the city of in Syria he married a woman called Salma binti Amr Salma the daughter of Amr. She, he married this woman. This is now Hashim. The great-grandfather, he married who? Salma, the daughter, the daughter of Amr. She was from Bani Adi ibn Najjar. Bani Adi. That's another tribe. She was from Bani Adi ibn Najjar. And this woman, Salma, now take a look at this. This could be one of the... This is now again. She is now the great-grandmother of the Prophet the wife of Hashim. Salma, before she was with, before she married Hashim, she was with Uhayha ibn Jallah, from the Aus tribe. 
and she was from the most honorable of women and the isma was in her hand meaning what she had the right of of, of talaq she was so honorable that if she decided to make talaq she would make talaq if she decided to stay in the marriage she would stay in the marriage right so if she disliked the man for any reason she would just leave him she had that amount of power you can say or that amount of status that was in, that it was in her hand right so she left this man out of her own will nobody in charge of her because she's that highly ranked you can say in terms of status this is who salma she then was proposed to by hashim and she saw the status of hashim the lineage of Hashim, so she decided to marry him she didn't need to be married off she marries herself off this was her status salma right so he stayed with her for a bit and then he went he continued on his journey of, of as, a, as a traveler or as a, as a as a businessman and she stayed with who was her family um in her city when he left she had become pregnant with Shaiba. With who? With Shaiba. This man Hashim, he then passed away in a battle in Palestine, in Palestine. He passed away in a battle in where? In Palestine. And his wife Salma, who was still in her at home with the family, she gave birth to a son who she named Shaiba. Shaiba. Right? So Hashim actually had four children. He had Shaiba, he had Asad, he had Abu Saifi, and Nadla. Nadla, sorry, four sons, right? Four sons. And he had five daughters who was Ashafa, Khalida, Daifa, Ruqayya, and Hayya, or Hanna. So he had four children and Thirty-nine kids, five daughters and four sons. One of those sons was who? Shaiba, whose mother was Salma, his wife. Right? Tayyib. Remember this name now. So that's the story of Hashim that we know of. That's the story of Hashim. Extremely honorable, noble man who used to honor the Hujjaj and feed the Hujjaj and so forth. And... He went on this business deal, trip, married a woman, Salma, and he died in Palestine in a battle. She gave birth to a son who she named Shaiba. Where was she? She, didn't, she never lived with him, remember? She stayed at home with her, with her people. طيب, let's move to the next one. Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hashim. Abdul Muttalib, the son of Hashim. Hashim, when he died, he advised and he left a will with his, with his brother. He left a, a will with his brother, Muttalib. So who was Hashim's brother? Hashim's brother is Muttalib. Muttalib. Right? So he left, it, he left his basically his duties with Muttalib. So therefore Muttalib became the one to look after the Hujjad. Feed them, give them their drinks and so forth. Right? He was obviously also an honorable man and so forth, had a lot of virtue and so forth, the Quraysh. Um, and the Quraysh used to even call him Al-Fayl, like which means person of abundance and so forth. So what happened was is, when Shaiba, the son of Hashim, 
he grew up somewhat. He was still a youngster, adolescent. Muttalib, um, he traveled as well. This is now who? His father's brother. Right? He was based in Mecca. He also traveled one day. And as he's traveling through Sham, he sees Shaiba. He sees Shaiba, his brother's son. And he immediately, immediately recognizes him. He recognizes Shaiba and his, his eyes are overfilled with tears. He starts to weep. And he embraces him, he picks him up, he hugs him and he holds him. And he takes out the best of garments for him and he dresses him up in his Yemeni garments. And he takes him and he puts him on his horse. And so Shaiba says to him, to his uncle, that he is now met for the first time in his life, I'm not going to leave my mother unless she gives me permission to leave. I will not leave my mother unless she gives me... It's a youngster. I will not leave my mother unless she gives me permission to leave. So Muttalib, his uncle goes to his mother and says, send him with me. And she refuses. She says, no, you will stay with me. And then Muttalib says, I will not leave until you send him with me. Because... That son of my brother, he's reached a good age as a young youngster and he will be a stranger in this land. Whereas we are, from the, we are from the elite of our land. We are from the best of the best of people and the most honorable people in our land. And he will be a person of status. His people will love him, his people will treat him in the best way and so forth. Better than these people over here will treat him. So this is how he basically convinced her to send him with him to Makkah. It will be better for him. He will be from the, the people of status. Whereas over here, he's just another child, you understand? He basically used this type of, of rhetoric with her and he convinced her. So eventually she left him, he let, let her son go with, her, with his uncle. And when he came to Makkah with this boy on his horse, and the Quraysh, they saw him coming into Makkah and he was a man of status. This is Muttalib. What did they say? This is Muttalib. This boy must be his slave that he purchased on, along the way. And this must be Abdul Muttalib, the slave of Muttalib. That's where the name Abdul Muttalib came from. But his name was actually Shayba. So Muttalib said to them, Waihakum, woke to you people. This is the son of my brother. This is my nephew. The son of Hashim. That I've come with, that I'm bringing birth to you. Well, that I'm bringing back to the city. But this is how they all saw him. They saw him coming in. They said, this must be the slave of Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib. This youngster, where did he come from? This must be the slave of Muttalib. That's where the name Abdul Muttalib came from. His name is actually Shaiba. His name is actually Shaiba. Tayyib. So Abdul Muttalib, Abdul Muttalib, meaning Shaiba, he remained in Makkah with his family until he grew up. He grew up to a good age and then Muttalib, his uncle, father's brother, eventually left once again on business and he died in a city 
called Radman. Radman in Yemen. And again, he then passed over those duties that his family would take care of, that his uncle, or his, his, his uh, brother, would take care of, over to who? To Shaiba. To basically, you know, back over to him, in terms of looking after the Hujjaj, feeding the Hujjaj, and so forth. <coughs> So Abdul Muttalib now becomes the, he now had those duties, he had grown up and he now takes over from his uncle who took, actually took over from his father, right? So Abdul Muttalib was a man who was fair complexion, he was extremely handsome, tall and eloquent. He was tall, he was eloquent, he was very good looking and he was, he was quite fair. Nobody saw him except that they loved him. Nobody would meet him except that they would be fond of him. And he reached such status in his, in his place, in his, in his village or in Makkah, basically in the city, none before him had actually reached. He became more popular, more well-known than his own father, Hashim, or Amr was his name, than his uncle, Muttalib, and his people loved him. And everybody looked up to him. Everybody used to praise him. And his nickname was Shaybat al-Hamd. Shaybat al-Hamd. Shayba, which is his name. Al-Hamd, the praised one, the praiseworthy. This is how they used to call him, Shaybat al-Hamd. He wasn't just Shayba anymore. Shaybat al-Hamd, the, the praised one, or the praiseworthy Shayba. Because people used to praise him all the time. Because that's how people used to always praise him. This is why they used to call him Shaybat al-Hamd. Shaybat, the praiseworthy one. Or the praised one. Some people used to call him Fayyad. Fayyad, which basically means abundance. Meaning a person that always had a lot and always gave a lot. It was a person who gave and he spent and he... And he others would call him Mut'imu Tayri Sama. The, the feeder of the birds in the sky. The feeder of the... Birds in the sky, with the provider of the birds in the sky. Because it was from his own table that he used to provide and give to the birds and even the animals on the mountaintops. So from his own food and his own table that he used to eat from, he used to give to the birds, he used to take to the mountaintops and leave food there for animals, wild animals that were living on top. This was the type of person that Abdul Muttalib or Shaiba was. In fact, it's a hadith that proves to us again how well-known Abdul Muttalib was. In again the Muslim from Ahmad, an authentic hadith from, narrated from Imran ibn Hussain. Imran ibn Hussain radiallahu anhu, he said that when Hussain, meaning his father, right, he's narrating about his father, when his father Hussain came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam before he accepted Islam, he said, Ya Muhammad, O oh Muhammad, Abdul Muttalib, kana khayran liqawmihi mink. Abdul Muttalib was better to his people than you are. Listen to this. Abdul Muttalib was better to his people than you are. Kana yut'imuhum al-kabida wa salam. He used to feed them from hump and from liver. Yani, he was so well known. 
that even after the Prophet ﷺ, after time came, this was his reputation. The people came to him, <coughs> this was a non-Muslim, came to him and said, your grandfather was a better person than you are. We know this is not true, obviously, but this is the reputation that Abdul Muttalib had. Even in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, you would hear about the, this reputation that his grandfather had. So, this actually the Sheikh says was not even, was not even restricted to Mecca or to the, the Arabian Peninsula. Rather, oh, sorry, it spread throughout the Arabian This, he was well known throughout the Arabian Peninsula, not just in his city. And there's even narrations from people of, of Yemen who would praise him, would give him status, and would, would honor him with swords and with, with, with these type of things because this is what he was known for. Right? This is what Abdul Muttalib. Um, was known for and he was known basically for this this goodness and this with having this high reputation throughout the, the Arabian Peninsula and not only in um, not only in Mecca in his city are you fixing the mic um, but we we done alhamdulillah yeah so, so we done to the hour really over hour so we'll stop here, inshallah. We are still on the chapter of before the birth of the Prophet. But some other issues to discuss about Abdul Muttalib, some incidents that happened in his life um, to do with the, 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 the well of Zamzam and also the story of the elephants that will come up next week, inshallah, and those birds that came um, until we get, which we should reach, inshallah, the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Inshallah. Next week, inshallah, we will be able to do it. 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 We will be able to do it.